0: So we carry on with Joshua this morning. Um, I know he was up earlier, but this is a different Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 2. I want to talk about learning faith from the locals. Um, some of the back story, you know, the Bible is this amazing meta-narrative. It's this big story. And part of the backstory is that uh, Joshua has been told, I will give you every place where you set your foot, because he's going to, as it were, take possession of this land. Now, 500 years before, uh, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham was told, Walk throughout the length and breadth of this land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham had to put his feet where God was giving him the land, and Joshua gets the same command. But we only inherit this kingdom, not... As Joshua had to by fighting with people, but by fighting for people. Once we translate this to the New Testament, and until we are willing to go, we simply aren't going to see uh, people being one in the way that, um, as it were, this inheritance was one. And so we only get the places where we're willing to go and stand. And to do this, of course, we've got to overcome fear and discouragement. Doing a quick summary of chapter one, and learn to be strong and courageous. And then two and a half tribes um, had had already found their inheritance. We saw this last week. Um, But but with Israel, they still had a shared responsibility, a a solidarity to not rest until the rest of God's people had found their rest. And we kind of realized it's not okay just for me to be okay. It's not okay. There's a solidarity and it has ethical force. And so God is not finished just because I have rest. God is not finished. It's because I've got something sorted. God is calling me to go to battle for those who are not part of my tribe. So that uh, brings us to what we saw last week, uh, the two oars, and, and some of you were taking notes, and I didn't specifically mention it, so let me help you. The first oar that when you're realizing you're going to battle for those who are not part of your tribe is diversity. You're going to be contending for the sake of people who, who may be very different to you. And the second is mission. And like they two, they two oars on a, on a rowing boat. You don't just pull one. You don't just emphasize diversity. You'll just go in a circle. You don't just emphasize mission. You t- you'll go in a circle. Mission just to my own people is not eventually mission. It's precisely the fact that the two are together, that the church of Jesus and the people of God accomplish God's purposes on the earth. And so if you're going to move forward, you move forward in diversity and mission. Now, that's quite radical. Uh, Why, I don't know. But apparently, you know, there was a whole lot of people who said it's much easier to do mission to people who are just like you. And so we all started forming churches with people who looked and sounded just like us. And then we wondered why the church had no credibility in God's sort of like uh, economy. It's precisely because we see those things held together. So now we move on today and uh, remember these themes because they become so significant as we unpack, especially today. You see, we meet today a Canaanite prostitute. Talk about as different as you possibly could get who is so full of faith that she's the one who gives courage to the people of God. So, Joshua chapter 2, learning faith from the locals. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Now, understand, Moses had publicly sent 12 spies, and only two of them got it right. So, Joshua secretly sends two. He's learned from his mentor how not to do this thing. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of the prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was... told, There are so many rabbits down this that I have to, uh, you know, control myself because literally at the end of the service, we've got to get in the car and drive because my son is waking waiting next to the end too at some point. And uh, we're going to pick him up and go on holiday. So... Uh, I just can't chase the rabbits, okay? Forgive me. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab: Bring out the men who came to you, entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. So, run, go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. Remember her reputation and her line of work, she probably had to have that eventuality as a a fairly, you know, opportune uh, hiding place. So there it was, and she just chucked these guys in there. So the men set out and the king's men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of uh, Jordan as soon as the pursuers had gone out the gate was shut before the spies lay down for the night she went up to the roof and said to them I know that the look listen to this this is where she's giving faith to the people of God I know that Yahweh the Lord has given this land to you And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all the people who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts sank. Everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is uh, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. What a statement. Now then, she says... Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured you. If you don't tell what we are doing, sometimes, you know, there's a difference between secrecy and confidentiality. Um, We will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. That's what's quite normal in those days for many of the homes. And she said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to us, Now, we've had a little bit of a a jump in the story as she's going to lower them the window, but... As all this is being done, there's a very important conversation uh, that took place. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord. So there's this big scarlet cord, it's not just a little thread, it's a cord, and you've got to tie it to the window through which you let us down, unless you have brought... And unless you've brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, and if any of them go outside your house, their blood will be on their heads. We won't be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we are released from the oath you made us swear. Notice that they don't yet know the Lord's strategy to conquer Jericho they very much thinking there's going to be fighting on the streets. We're going to have to do all this stuff. The Lord has not yet appeared to Joshua. The Lord has not yet opened this. And so they are making plans quite sensibly as invaders. And sometimes that's what we just got to do. You've got to get stuck in and prepare. And then it's wonderful when God shows up. But what you can't do is say, well, God's got to show up before anything can happen. So, you know, Joshua's got his men. They're doing this thing. And so she says, agreed. She replied, let it be as you say. And so she sent them away, they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills, stayed there three days until the pursuers who had searched for them all along the road returned back without finding them. And then the two men started back, they went down out of the hills, forded the river, came to Joshua, son of Nun, told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua... The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. And the people are melting in fear because of us. We don't always recognize when God is getting ready to do something amazing. A pastor called Andrew Murray, who, who was probably at the heart of one of the greatest revivals our country has ever seen, was based in Wellington. But what was, is less known about him was that he actually missed the revival when it started to break up. And this was because it came from such an unlikely source and in such an unlikely way. You see, Murray was leading a multi-service, multilingual parish. Sounds a little sort of like familiar-ish. Um, with different congregations, multi-racial congregations, when on Sunday evening it was called to the youth prayer meeting in one of the congregations. And the deacon in charge did not know what to do because a young girl from the Fingo tribe had begun to pray. She had read a psalm and then started to pray and then stopped praying in her own language, in Afrikaans, in English, and was just praying in a language nobody knew. And the power of God fell on the guys and they started telling God how sorry they were for messing up their lives and for all their sin. It was very emotional and several things happened. The effect had, you know, everyone in the room was like just watching dominoes fall, and everyone still came under this huge conviction, and they were starting to forgive each other, ask, you know, apologize to one another, tell God they were sorry, and there was just this repentance that swept through the room. And then they just started praying simultaneously, and Andrew Murray was eventually called, and when he came into the room, it just didn't look like, you know, a decent church service. So he he, he stood up at the front. He tried to stop the meeting several times. Tried to bring it to order. At one point, he, he stood at the front and shouted, "I am your minister. You will stop this now." And clearly, the Holy Spirit was more of a minister than him because they carried right along. And he would go then and pick on one person and like bring him around. And he would say, "You've got to stop this." And the person said, "Okay, sorry." And then he'd move to the next person. The previous person would just go straight back into prayer and bending and crying out to God. And eventually he just left, and it took him three months to realize that this was the real thing. And part of it was that it just came from such a weird source. God had put faith in the heart of a local finger girl. And he was Eurocentric and thinking, well, we're the ones who have going to bring, you know, we're the ones, we're the colonizers who bring the gospel, whatever. And he had to overcome and realize that he... Was learning faith from the locals and that her heart was wide open. And in a sense, what happens for Joshua is something similar. They're going to be learning faith from the the locals. You see, faith can emerge from the unlikeliest places and the unlikeliest people. You see, God, as was prayed earlier, is always at work and He's way ahead of us. And when we set out to uh, to obey Him, we should be looking for signs that God has got there long before us. So we get the two unnamed spies, and they experience this. Um, But this focus of the story, of course, is not the spies, it's not even Joshua. The real focus is Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute, who becomes one of the Bible's faith heroes, even though only four women, for example, are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, she's one of them. And she becomes a prototype explaining one of the missional strategies. That Jesus advocated, for example, in Luke chapter 10, where he says, Whenever you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it comes back to you. Stay there eating and drinking what they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't run around from house to house. And Jesus recognizes the strategy of finding in the culture that you're trying to reach a person of peace. A person who will welcome you give you shelter, give you nourishment, and, and suddenly the relationship is not that you're the powerful one. They're actually the one who holds your, as it were, life in their hands. Jesus says you've almost got to be like these spies when they go into Rahab's house. They had to trust in her completely. But wait a minute. She's she's like she's a prostitute. Well, let's dig into the story a little bit. The first thing is that we see is that uh, Rahab receives and protects it. They come under her hospitality. Jericho is tightly shut up. The people are terrified. Israel is getting ready to cross the Jordan, and everyone's on full alert. And these two guys slip into the city. They think they're unnoticed, and they head to the nearest hotel. And a bit like the Wild West, uh, there's probably very little difference between the hotel, the salon, and the escort agency in those days. And so... These guys slip in there and and they think they're strangers and nobody knows. Rayab knows immediately and says, you're not staying down at the pub. You're going straight upstairs and she sticks them under the flax. Um, There'd probably been a few husbands who'd had to hide there in the past. And so, uh, you know, she kind of puts them there, built into the city wall. She immediately recognizes who they are and the danger and she provides them protection because she's been doing thinking long before they knocked on her door. You see she's been processing the story of the action of God through his people. The news had arrived and everyone else is afraid and she's going, I want a God like that. Why should I stay in a place where my gods are powerless in the face of the God? And then of course there's a story and I mean it's full of humor and everything like that because she sends the guys on a wild goose chase and off they go belting down to the forts and And uh, you you wonder how many men she had spun along in her life. Um, And then lastly, of course, she lowers them down the wall, and there's the famous scarlet cord. And in one sense, without going too heavy into the typology here, it's a technical term, but there is just this picture of a scarlet thread through Scripture. I'm not going to go further into that, but it's a a worthwhile uh, discovery as well and her reasons for doing it for receiving them, protecting them is that the second thing we see in the story is that she reveals her faith she in fact teaches them faith, she encourages their faith and so in an Andrew Murray like incident, you, you see that the guys who should have carried the faith are learning from this, the local for example, she says this, talking about the future, she says, I know the Lord has given this land to you, like like she knows that this land is not going to stay in the space, and she has recognized what the future holds, and you know, our faith is profoundly future-oriented, and you have to make decisions today based on what God has said will happen in the future, and the future hangs over us and, and invades the present as part of our kingdom theology. And then she says this. Now she, she's looked at the future, but she also looks at the past. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings uh, east of the Jordan. And so she's not just looking at the future. What she senses, she actually looks at the past. And she extrapolates from what God has done in the past and says, well, that's the guarantee of the future, isn't it? And then she talks about the present. And she says, God is king now. He is for Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And she recognizes in spite of all the competing gods of Canaan, and there were many, that this God rules. And so what God has done, is going to do in the future, is already evident in a sense of what he's done in the past. And so she doesn't do what many of us do. And Lord, I know you did it, but I really don't know if you can do it again. <laughs> she goes, God, I know you've done it. That means you can do it again. If you've opened the Red Sea, you can do that again. And, and, he, and in a sense, he did. Jordan dried up. If you've overthrown those kings, you can do it again. And he did. You know, city after city. And those were, they were, they were um, city kingdoms. So there was a city, each had their own king. And in one sense, it just reminds us that we've got to be looking at the victories of God around us. And we've got to remind ourselves of the victories of God in the past. And we've got to say, that translates into my present and will be present in my future. The past shows me what will be present in my future. Rahab's faith and so she's putting her faith in this space but it's very clear thirdly that Rahab needs them too this is not a one-sided act it's not just her providing protection not just her bringing faith there has to be this covenant of promise between them which means that as she's provided their protection so they too will become her protectors as she has saved them they too the people of God will become the context of her salvation now we read in Joshua 6 verse 22 and 23 and I'm sure the scarlet cord was there because it was hung there from that first day and as they walked around what if the spies saw the scarlet tree, you know seven six days they walked around and then on the seventh day seven times So thirteen times you know they saw that and they were reminding themselves they didn't know what was going to happen by the way they thought they were still going to have a battle and when they shouted getting ready to fight God brought the walls down sometimes you just got to get ready for the battle and just that is enough get yourself in the place and if you don't you'll never see what God can do now here's the thing Rahab in my opinion second maybe maybe not even to Joshua is the most important theological human character in the book of Joshua, if not the most important. Now she, she only appears a couple of times in the story. How can I say that? Now this deserves a sermon on its own, um, but I've run out a year. So you've got to just uh, let me kind of drop this in as we, as we wrap up. You see, finish the sentence. The major theological challenge of the book of Joshua is? I don't know if you've realized that there is a big problem in the book of Joshua. Faith, Faith, Jesus, those are normally church answers. No, no. Um, Sorry, you know, that's it. I I could extrapolate. What's the big crisis in the book of Joshua? It starts with a G. Genocide. Nation after nation is massacred. I know you didn't think of that, but but it's a. Okay. I mean, like we're supposed to be nice people, aren't we? And and like God is supposed to be good, isn't he? How on the earth do you have this massacre of the peoples and still remotely think of this as a good thing? Rahab plays an absolutely key part in understanding what on earth is going on. So now I've opened a can of worms, and this is a series by itself, but here we go. The first thing we need to do is understand, and this is... So, I've got three points in my, in my sermon, it was about Rahab, and now there's three theological points that I'm going to make. The first one is this: judgment for sin is certain because justice is certain. Understand this, judgment is certain because justice is certain. Sin is never victimless. There are no innocent crimes before God. So when you pray for God's kingdom to come, you are praying for justice, which means you are praying for judgment. And sin certainly wasn't victimless, if we look at the archaeological records and what was going on and what Scripture itself tells us, among the Canaanites. This was a brutal and cruel society. Now when the cries, listen to me, because this is so important. When the cries of the oppressed reach heaven, God promises to act on their behalf when the time is just and right. God is consistent in this. This is not racial. This is not tribal. If you have messed with that which is right and good, God will stand against you. And and in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 12 through 18, Israel, Israel is warned that their own towns must be similarly destroyed if they begin to follow the practices of the people. Because they've started worshipping the idols of the people. This is not racial. This is not nationalistic. This is what judgment looks like in that day. So judgment is certain because justice is certain. You you want wrongdoers to stop and they're not going to choose it? Well, then you need someone stronger than them to make that thing stop. Secondly, judgment is delayed because of the mercy of God. So 500 years before this, Abraham's told, you're going to wander around this place and because I'm going to give this land to you. And then God explains this. He says, Genesis 15 verse 16, that the sin of these nations, the Canaanites, does not yet warrant his judgment. So I want you to walk among these people and and, and worship me among them and show them who I am. These people had generation upon generation upon generation upon generation to stop their injustice, to stop their evil, and to bring their sin to an end. From Abraham, through the lifespan of the patriarchs, through the 400 years In Egypt, through the 40 years in the wilderness, that these people have simply pursued their destructive ways deeper and deeper. And eventually, God says their sin has reached its measure, and the cries of the oppressed have reached heaven. Sounds like Exodus as well. A couple of sobering thoughts there. Is my life sowing righteousness? or am I lining myself up in some way for judgment? I can go generation after generation apparently unaffected. Two things, the one is that even on this earth There will be righteousness. And secondly, understand that according to Scripture, a day will come when God will balance the books. And when you're praying, God, your kingdom come. You are asking for justice. You are asking for lies to be overthrown. You are asking that those who abuse and break God's earth would be held to account. And if they will not change, that they will be rendered powerless and without influence. But yes, probably the greatest thing in this book. Judgment is certain because justice is certain. Judgment is delayed because of the mercy of God. And judgment is cancelled when people turn in faith to the Lord. So Rahab is part of this people. She's actually got a reputation amongst those who have been rebelling against God of being one of the worst. (laughs) I mean, she's in Jericho and she's running a house of ill repute in Jericho. She's like at the bottom of the bottom of the social ladder. But she hears the word of God, what he has done and what he is doing, and something shifts inside of her. And she says, I don't want to identify with this. I want to put my trust in him. And not only will Rahab be saved, not only will her household be saved, not only will her mom and dad be saved, not only her brothers and sisters and anyone else who can squeeze into her house but an incredible picture she will marry this, this woman whose reputation is so bad apparently she will marry a name a man whose name is Yeshua we call him Joshua in the New Testament his name would be Jesus in the Greek well in the English translation of the Greek and she will be celebrated because, because judgment is canceled when people turn to the Lord in faith. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who says you're disqualified. If you will turn to the Lord in faith, Rahab is a theological statement in the depth of a lost society that you're never too far from the mercy of God if you will put your faith in Him. And that God Himself... Yeshua himself will marry you to himself. What a picture. And she will be celebrated in the lineage of Jesus. I mean celebrated. Celebrated. Honored. As a Gentile prostitute. Isn't that brilliant? That in the lineage of Jesus. In the family of Jesus. And in the household of faith. Is someone who has been grafted in someone who has been brought in because of the mercy of God and what did she do? well everything was her actions mattered yes but her actions were the fruit of a prior faith she had put her hope in Yahweh she was trusting in the God of Israel and you know Jesus had several Rahab like missional encounters in his ministry wasn't it so like people with dodgy reputations, living on the margins. Other times in really powerful places, causing harm way beyond what one man should be able to do. And they end up receiving him. They end up giving him water. They end up, but what happens? He gives them water, the woman at the well. Um, you know, Zacchaeus, he received Jesus into his home. What happens? Suddenly, Jesus is emptying out his home because money has been given back in restitution to the poor. The story of Matthew, this tax collector who becomes the follower of Jesus. You see, Jesus often, like these spies, has to entrust himself to the risk of hospitality of others. People can tell him to go away. People can tell him, there's no room. Or you can open the door. And so guys, as we go into Christmas... Remember that Jesus says this to a church in Revelation 23. Listen, look, see, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open the door, I will come in and we will eat together. See, Jesus is asking for your hospitality. This doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming. One day, if you don't say yes, There will be another day with another whole set of consequences. But judgment is cancelled. Why? Is that not injustice? No, because judgment was executed on the person of Jesus himself. He went to the cross on our behalf. Not even the Joshua of the Old Testament could do that. Not even Abraham. Not Moses. Not King David. And not the Apostle Paul. Nobody but Jesus. God the Son. The Son of God became a perfect human being, was without sin in his actions and in his words, and he chose to take your place so that justice might be faithfully executed. And he did it as a willing, loving substitute so that you can walk free. And I want to ask you this Do you want to be included? In the covering of the safety and the mercy of God. Then recognize today what Jesus has done for you. You see that scarlet thread. Don't want to overdo this. But there's this hint in the text. That the escape from a condemned place is by means of holding on to a scarlet thread. We could go to Passover and look at the mark of the scarlet blood on the door and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to go there. But understand this. That there's woven into this theology the recognition that if you put your faith in God, the judgment which was certain in God's mercy, point number two, has been cancelled because the judgment has been executed onto Jesus. And if you put your faith in Him, He will grant you the mercy. You seek.